Hello, everybody. You are listening to Corpse Run Radio. This is Ian Hazikostas, and enjoy. Vol'jin said I should step out of the shadows. So I did. Here I am asking you to join the fight. For the Horde! And for the Forsaken. Welcome to Corpse Run Radio. This is Corpse Run Radio. We are the Forsaken. We are the Forsaken. Hello and welcome to Corpse Run Radio, episode 116, the first show of 2021. I still have a hard time saying that. I really look forward to all the adventures we get to go on in this year in the Shadowlands. I'm really pleased with most of the basic workings of Shadowlands. There are a couple that I don't really like but with the first launch patch there are bound to be some obstacles that have to be smoothed out eventually and fine-tuned so until we see 9.1 i'm not too worried about the consistency in the features so i really hope that those rough edges get sanded down at least we didn't have as much of a broken system at the start as the as the right armor was so i'm quite happy with that not going to go into specifics here the only thing i would like to say is that for me the biggest obstacle is gearing and with the recent statements from the devs that i've heard and read about there are changes coming apparently so i'm quite looking forward to see what that's going to be about so let's get down to the show today i have for you the story of venari by noble i have two songs from charm hero maradex's launch review for shadowlands and a basic catch-up guide for mainly your alts, I would say, or for people that don't have much time to play, that lag behind, or that just are off to a late start for whatever reasons. But I'll let So So Breezy explain, because it's his guide. All in all, welcome to the show, and let's start off with Noble87 and his story of Venari, a broker living in the mall. Why she would want to do that is beyond me. Here is Noble 87. Hello everyone. Venari is a broker that's hanging out in the mall and a great aid in our efforts against the jailer. Or climbing the Tower of Torgast, or pretty much anything that we need she can hook us up with. I finally finished earning my reputation with her. So let us talk about Venari. A few years ago, she found herself as part of a team assigned to the mall by Cartel V. 
which is different from Cartel Ba that's hanging out in Orobos. Now the brokers in general, they're, they're quite mysterious, but it's obvious that they're into making deals, making profits, gaining influence and power. To them, what is more alluring than a mall walker? Someone with an uncanny ability to hop in and out of the mall, a domain for which none is supposed to escape. Assuming that Vanari was sent into the mall for a similar purpose, a pursuit of power, a pursuit of profit, you have to wonder if this was actually a suicide mission. Just drop some agents in there, hope that they can find a way out again. Daring for sure, but that's not how the mission went. Traveling in a large group, it may provide the illusion of security. In reality, it just made them a more tempting target. Her party learned that the hard way. Their numbers were whittled away until there were few enough of them left to hide themselves. That did slow the hunt, but it did not stop it. When it was just Fanari left, she accepted the truth of the situation. Solitude offered the best chance of survival, at least until we arrive. The first time they run into her, that is while questing through Maldraxxus. Margrave Craxus is slain. Vaira suggests that we use our super duper mall walker abilities to jump into the mall and find a missing baron. While tracking him down on our own is a bit too tricky. Over, he might know a way of finding his missing horseman, since Darian was also left behind in the mall. He provides us with an amulet, which each of the four horsemen carries as well imbued with a power that links them to one another. After powering it up with a bit of dark magic at Zoval's cauldron, it leads us straight to Darien, locked up in a cage. The key we then collect from Brethlander Brand, but getting Darien out of there, remaining unnoticed within the Maw, it proves to be rather difficult. You will never escape the Maw! Ah, I was curious what the Moorsworn were searching for. You are that mortal who swept through and thwarted the Jailer's festivities. I am Venari, a humble broker trapped in this land of torment. I have a proposition for you. Come. Why would you aid us, broker? Your presence here draws attention. The sort of attention that's bad for my business dealings. No offense, of course. I have picked up a few tricks to help me survive here. The Jailer will take notice if you engage his forces, so it is wise to go around them whenever possible. I trust you are not I can conceal us long enough to Stay fight. close. I do not wish to draw attention with the fight. How long have you been trapped here? Longer than you have, mortal. That is all you need to know. She'll help us find our missing Baron. But her help, it doesn't come for free. She wants our shiny new amulets. And since it already served its purpose, we decide to make the trade. The Morsworn are certainly eager to find you. We need to make this quick. Do not rush us, Broker. There are others who must be saved. Along with the Maldraxxi Baron. Ah, you speak of the mortals left behind when your friend here escaped. I fear they've been taken to Torghast. That tower looming in the distance. The Jailer keeps his most prized possessions within. Then show us a way to breach that tower. It would be folly to go after them now. Remain focused. There will be time for... 
theatrics later. With Anari's aid, we're able to bring our mission to a success. And while she offers advice on how to get Alexandros and Darian out of the mall, she herself makes no effort to leave. Soon enough, we found ourselves back in this domain, in search of souls to save. Well, in truth, to bring back to our covenant and put them to work. Our earlier escapade, it has drawn the jailer's attention and his ire. After all, none have successfully eluded him before, except for Venari. Now his forces are on high alert, hunting down any errant souls that the fabled Mallwalker may try to steal. It has made things quite inconvenient for our broker friends. And if we're going to work together, we'll need to set a few ground rules. None must be told of her existence, and our endeavors here are our own to accomplish. She will provide us with a Soul Keeper, an artifact that is capable of storing souls found within the Maw. By accepting the Soul Keeper, we enter into this contract and we agree to her terms. We'll also freely share any valuable information that we discover within the Maw. In exchange, she will allow us to purchase tools to help us survive this realm and rescue the souls that we seek. You must. It is remarkable what you can find discarded in the Maw. I pride myself in recognizing a valuable asset when I see one. So, with the Soul Keeper, we can hold a small number of souls until we return to our covenant. But there will be of little benefit if we don't survive ourselves. There is a substance, Stygia, that is found in some creatures within the Maw. It is the byproduct of the violent destruction of a soul within this place. The stronger the soul, the more Stygia they'll have. If we collect some for her, she can turn it into many useful things. We start off with something simple, like a cipher of relocation that will teleport us back to Vanari's refuge. But as the trust between us grows, more things become available, like enabling transportation through chaotic riftstones or unlocking the Anima Flow teleporter, which allows for quick travel to different sections of the Maw, or upgrades that make her stay in the Tower of Torcas just a little bit easier. Or the things that will keep most people trapped in this hellish domain. A gadget that adds a socket to gear and an unbound reality fragment, which will discover an upgrade to a random conduit from amongst our lowest item level conduits. All in all, some nifty upgrades. But per usual, it all has a price. With that Rule 1. Always have an exit strategy. To ensure one's continued existence within the mall, one must maintain a plan of escape at all times. I acknowledge the irony of me creating this rule despite my current inability to depart this place. You may laugh briefly without causing offense. <laughs> Enough chuckling. Gather the stygia I require and return with haste. Your cipher awaits. You trespass in my domain, mortal. No matter where you hide, I will find you. The jailer has learned and is now paying a lot more attention to his domain. But for some reason, he's still not just instantly murdering us. This happens in stages. He seems to be choosing the old Lich King tactic of taunting us, slowly ramping up the stakes and the pain. Now it does change the terms of our arrangements with Venari. Though we may wish to depart with our precious souls, we now have additional matters to settle first. The extra attention from the Jailer, it does not bode well for either of us. We'll have to reinforce her wards to ensure that he doesn't notice Venari as well. And while we do, she explains more of her rules. I will rule two. Keep a low profile. The Mo is no place for theatrics. Get in, 
get what you want and get out, while endeavoring to retain your limbs and other possessions. Now that the jailers noticed you, you're doomed. Anything of import you do in the mall will catch his attention. And attention is exactly what we don't want. First, he'll turn the Soul Seekers on you. Then the Towers. Then his kill squads. And after that, well, you don't want to know. Surgical and meticulous. That's how you stay alive. The good news is that you're safe here in my refuge. Not so out there. Remember, should a tragic fate befall you, some of that precious Stygia might slip through your fingers. Fret not, mortal. A day at most away from his gaze, and the Jailer will turn his attention elsewhere. Then it will be safe for you to venture out again, to acquire Stygia. For me. That's the penalty for dying in the mall. You'll lose a portion of your Stygia. You can retrieve it Dark Souls style by going back to your corpse. And now, one final task remains before we leave this cursed realm. The Mawsworn regularly transfers souls to various blocks of Torghast from many different areas within the Maw. We place a beacon in one such area so Vanadi can be informed on when the next transfer happens. Rule 3. Trust is earned and information has a price. You recall the cipher I gave you? That's right, you are now in my debt. As we talked about last week, we place the beacon and then we can see Bane trying to escape Torghast. Our allies, they're still alive, we can still save our leaders. And Vanari, she hooks us up with a way to breach the Jailer's Tower. Torghast, huh? Once I told you that your friends were being held inside, I knew it was only a matter of time before you came to me for aid. Because I was able to anticipate your request, it just so happens I have already acquired a portal device that leads into the tower. I will dispense with the usual warnings and disclaimers as your unique combination of courage and foolhardiness would render them moot. Do not ask how it was obtained. Simply consider it a gesture of goodwill that you are now obligated to repay. I look forward to our future transactions, Moorwalker. In the tower, we do run into more brokers, but none that have a specific cartel title, nor do they seem to follow Vanari, as we need to trick them into offering us better deals. Is this just a game mechanic to allow us to buy upgrades, or is there more at play here, as these random brokers inside the Torghast, they just seem to be a little bit odd? Who knows? All the same, we get Bane out of there. We even find the Rune Carver. They're a prisoner of the Jailer, who Vanari helps set free. Somewhat anyways, one hand of them, which is plenty to put them to work. And we have someone to craft our legendaries. Rule 4. Maintain a list of those who might wish to end your existence. Do not flatter yourself. Your presence on this list is among the least of the most wants functionaries. At the top of my list is an Inquisitor. His position has risen. I would be most generous were his existence to cease by your actions. 
The jailer might have his eye on us from time to time, but he's also very aware of Venari, and he has his forces work on methods trying to track her down. This Inquisitor Devaki that she wants us to kill, they have a whole bunch of cartel V corpses around them, and behind them we find a method of tracking. It's a sphere, pulsed with magic that is utilized by the brokers. A message is inscribed on it. We know what you did, Venari. You will pay the price. Return. My cartel has been sending agents into the moor for some time. A dangerous assignment. But the lure of valuable information has a certain appeal to my kind. We know Venari's story on how she ended up here. But her cartel is so invested on taking her out that they've been sending more agents into the maw. Even in Orobos, we have Broker Varane questioning us. She deals with assets and liabilities for the Cartel V, and she's heard that we're able to freely travel between Orobos and the Maw, which is a place of great interest to her cartel, and she has a few questions. Is it true that the Jailer's forces have grown in both strength and number? Which we answer truthfully, it has grown more powerful since the Nephrius betrayal, so it remains quite a dangerous place in which to conduct business. Question 2. Do we find it challenging to survive amidst the oppressive and unceasing horrors within the Maw? Here, you can answer whatever you like. I like to believe that I eat monsters for breakfast. Which brings them to their final question. As you've braved the Maw, has Venari proven to be a valuable ally to you? Rule number one, you do not talk about Venari. So we play dumb. But this broker is pretty sure that we know who she's talking about. After all, there is no way a mortal like us could survive an excursion to the mall without her assistance. They want to know everything about our dealings with Venari. If she is chosen not to return to Orobos with us, then she will have questions to answer as well. Still, we play dumb, and she leaves us with a word of advice. Be careful who you trust, especially within the maw. There is something that Venari is not telling us, and she is honest about that. There are many things that she chooses not to tell us, as she's sure that there are many things that we do not tell her. Trust is built on discretion. Without it, business would be impossible. That being said, she has trusted us with her most valuable secret, the location to this very refuge. All she asked is that we trust her in return. A trust that is built up over time, proving ourselves to Venari week by week, day in and day out, visiting the mall to do all kinds of things, completing weekly quests and daily quests, taking on the forces of the jailer, tracking down rares, participating in mini-events, return to her with all kinds of things found in this domain, not to mention the boatloads of Stygia. There's also an achievement, which is called Deciphering Death's Intention, for which you have to return specific items. For example, there's Subject 638, a dead night elf at Zovile's Cauldron that holds Tormentor's notes. On live, you just return the item, a reminder of what would happen should we fail in our efforts against the Jailer. On beta though, this item could actually be read. Subject 638, it's a fellow Mallwalker. Since lore-wise, we are not the only ones. Mortals had to choose different covenants, and this Mallwalker was captured by the Jailer's forces to then be experimented upon. Experiment 72 Hypothesis. Mallwalker Anima Extraction provides more power when soul-forging. Test 1. Physical Pain. Various implements used to inflict physical pain, subject was highly resistant to all physical methods. Test 2. Sound. Partial success of anima extraction through constant exposure to gnomish tavern jigs. Problematic implementation. 
caused several Marsworn to abandon post, resulting in subject nearly escaping. Test number three. Forced visualizations. Similar implementation to the torture chambers of Torgast. Subject forced to relive specific moments. Breaking point. 115th run of the burning of Teldras Hill. Results. Significant anima extraction, resulting in equally significant Stygiar generation. Soulforge fully supplied equal to 10 times normal sources. Transfer of Maul Walker prisoners to Soulforges, ordered per Warden Korov. I wonder why this note didn't make it to life. Maybe the torment of reliving the burning of Teldrassil, it was a bit too much. I did really want to mention it though, as lore-wise, it's pretty cool to see the acknowledgement of multiple Mawwalkers, and some of them actually failing. It adds a bit more danger to the idea of the Maw, a domain that's not fully available at the start. Some of the areas, they're simply too dangerous without the right tools to conceal ourselves. After earning more of a trust, Fanari hooks us up and gives us rule 5. Be audacious. Rule 5. Be audacious when the situation demands it. The Mosswan rarely expect this. Perdition Hold is teeming with activity. I must know why. Take this experimental cipher. Should it function as I expect, entering Perdition Hold should not result in your sudden demise. Hmm, probably. This cipher works, hiding our anima patterns and vulnerabilities, preventing our enemies from dealing 200% extra damage while in perdition holds. Inside, we find a surviving broker of Cartel V. It's Seeker Zeros that's been torturing them, trying to find a way to track down Vanari. This is a threat best not left standing, so we take them out, but not before discovering that the other prisoners, they've been taken into the Beast Warrens. It is unfortunate that they should suffer such a fate, but make no mistake. They are as much our enemy as are the Mossworn. Those brokers were doomed from the moment they arrived, and even if we were to rescue them, doing so would only invite ruin upon us both. A ruthless mentality, Venari admits, but it is the one that is necessary for survival in the Maw. Some time passes, some trust is earned, and she makes a startling discovery. The captured agents, they've led to new ways for the Mossworn to track her down, and now strange new runes empower the jailer's hounds. Will that be all six? Implement new concealment measures regularly. The Mossworn never stop devising new ways to find us. The cipher will dampen your uh, aroma in their warrens. Bring me the runes which animate these fiends that I may better understand their function. A brand new cipher. This one that prevents hearing the otherworldly screeching that goes on in the Beast Warrens, which normally would fear and deal damage to even the bravest among us. Vebrux, Asset Analysis. They're chained up here. They are sent to recoup their losses from Venadi's betrayal. Their compatriots, they've all been drained of their essence to then be turned into those foul runes. He is going to be next if we don't help him out. All his Stygia will be ours if we save him from Room Master Mavrok. Though truth be told, he owes us a great more deal than just the Stygia that he has. And he has nothing left to offer except for wisdom and warnings. Venari is not who she seems. She betrayed her former associates and will do the same to us if she know we spoke. Do not trust her lies. Again, there are two stories being told here. And who knows what the truth might be. Rule 7 is that betrayal is inevitable. When she was working with the tracking runes we discovered, she detected a device of broker origin nearby. It must have been brought into the Maw by the captured expedition. 
and we try to retrieve it, only to run into a trap set up by Febrox. It's hard to trust the word of someone that's trying to kill us. Force us to take them out of the maw with Venati's aid and an impressive display of the power of Stygia. Vebrox is taken care of. Rule 7. Betrayal is inevitable. Even from those close to you. Especially from those close to you. Now that we know there are mortals who can leave this realm, I suddenly find myself in what is... Mm, shall we say an enviable position. And my cartel does not handle envy particularly well. Those who assigned me here years ago are now sending assassins to destroy me. Should you encounter others of my cartel in the Shadowlands, they are not to be trusted. If they realize that you are my trading partner, I suspect they will eagerly end you in an effort to harm my prosperity. For that is what we are, mortal. Partners. From now until our last flame flickers. In closing, do not betray me. Which still leaves a whole bunch of questions left to be answered. How is she always able to produce whatever we require? Like that soul keeper or a specific key to the Tower of Torgas? At first I figured that she might be in league with the Jader as well. But then his forces, they are going through a whole lot of trouble trying to track her down. Why does Venari stay within the Maw? Is this perhaps related to that betrayal that Cartel Vey keeps mentioning? What horrible things await her on the outside that make her want to stay in hell? Or is she simply preparing herself? We are supplying her with a whole bunch of power found within the Maw. And that Stygia, it can do quite a bit of damage. I'm really curious where all of this might go in the future. If we'll see a broker patch and get much more information about them. But for now, you're up to speed on the story of Venari. So as always, thank you very much for watching everyone. Subscribe if you like my videos. Leave a like if you enjoyed this one. And until next time. See ya. Where
destroy your weight up This whole ravenous, forever gluttonous Seek an anima to fill itself up See the council twirling, dancing Join the dance macabre Stripped of anima And crashed into your walk desire Now a giant's taken to riot Watch out for his fist betwixt us The generals only serve the sire Bolstered soldiers, stone-born advisors been out for a month or two now, so it's time to review the launch. First, we'll start off by going into a deep dive of everyone's new favorite feature of the expansion, the Covenants. Here's a little story for you. One of my favorite video games of all time is Ori and the Blind Forest. It's a metroidvania with some of the best graphics, or aesthetics anyway, of any game that I played because it just personally appeals to me for some reason. Even though I hate nature, I don't like camping or going outside but I do love the artwork and aesthetic of the Blind Forest. And when I first saw the Zone of Ardenwald, it totally gave me Ori in the Blind Forest vibe, so I was super excited to learn more about it. 
When I got into the alpha and was able to play through the zone, it also scratched another itch of mine, where there was tons of references to the Feywild from D&D lore, and the Midsummer Night Dream Shakespearean play, which is one of the only Shakespearean plays that I actually liked, that and Hamlet. And the leader of the zone is known as the Winter Queen, which is totally the name of one of the main deities in the Feywild in D&D, and the Winter Queen in D&D is evil. So I'm still suspicious of the Winter Queen in WoW as well, because you can't be the Winter Queen in the Feywild without something nefarious going on in the background. She's a little bit too nice, which just makes it even more suspicious. But that also means I totally loved the zone and everything about it, and I was really excited to finally go Night Fae once the expansion launched. Then I started to play around with the Covenant ability for my Priest, and it was so bad that I couldn't bring myself to choose Night Fae once I hit max level and had to pick a Covenant. I really wanted to go Night Fae. I loved basically everything about the Covenant, and all I needed was for my ability to not be bad. It didn't even need to be good, just not terrible. And unfortunately, I couldn't get over that threshold. The Priest ability they have is called Fae Guardians, which on a long cooldown summons three fairies which go out and do things dependent on which spells you cast. Basically, it will reduce the damage of the last person you cast power shield on by 10% for the duration, it will increase the cooldown recovery of only the major cooldown for a class when you heal them with a direct heal, and the target which has your dot on it will give you half a percent of mana back every time you attack that target with a direct attack. Now, here's what's not very good about this. The 10% damage reduction is too minor for a 2 minute cooldown and too cumbersome to keep on a priority target. The cooldown reduction works only on one ability, and the cooldown it lowers for Dis Priest is actually useless, since you don't want to lower its cooldown, since you combo it with other cooldowns or raid phases. And the mana it gives back is barely better than the Venthyr ability, and you have to go out of your way to get more mana back. The Venthyr ability, on the other hand, also gives you mana when you use it. When you use Mind Games, the Venthyr Covenant ability, you can get up to 4% of your mana back, and since it has half the cooldown as a Night Fae ability, it can easily average out around the same amount of mana return based on real-world usage, if not in actual sims. And the Venthyr Covenant ability doesn't require you to go through hoops to get the mana back. You just use it and it's immediately useful, and you get the mana back as well as having nice damage reduction to the target, which will heal the tank when it's on them, and it does so much damage that it combos so well with the Dispriest rotation that it almost feels like it's a natural ability that's supposed to be part of the class. Instead of a clunky piece of garbage that requires you to go through hoops to get the best use out of one useful ability. And this is why I eventually just went Venthyr, even though I really wanted to go Night Fae. Now, would people deny me from groups if I went Night Fae instead of Venthyr? No, probably not. They'd deny me because I'm a Dispriest, and Dispriests are garbage in Mythic Plus Dungeons. Not because of my Covenant. You don't really need your Covenant ability to heal like a god in raids, either. In raids, I could technically pick whatever I want but I'd rather have a useful ability than a useless one, and that's just my personal preference when playing my class. The other two covenants are fine too, but if I can't get my first choice of covenant, then I'm gonna pick whichever one's the best, and that's definitely Venthyr. So, even though I really wanted to make the RP choice with picking my covenant, I unfortunately just couldn't bring myself to do it, and now I begrudgingly belong to the Venthyr. The Venthyr aren't half bad though, they do have nice aesthetic as well, I do really love the whole red and black vibe they have going on, and the vampire bat people look cool enough. I think they would be better if they didn't look so much like bat people and instead more like vampires, but whatever. The zones also look really cool, can't really knock at any points on that. 
but the mission table is straight garbage. As of making this video, I have still yet to complete a single Soul Ash mission because the Venthyr troops are just straight up worse than Night Fae and Necrolord ones. But at least the Kyrian can share in our pain of being useless at mission tables. I didn't unlock the Ember Court until like four weeks after launch because I just don't really care for it. It's fine and everything, I don't hate the Ember Court. I think it's actually a fun little minigame. It's just the quest to unlock it took so long that I gave up halfway through it because I just didn't care enough to unlock a fun little minigame. Although I think the only Covenant ability that's actually useful is probably the Abomination Factory. So it's not like I would have had a more fun time if I had gotten Night Fae on that front. And the Venthyr have a few other things about their Covenant which are subpar, but those are probably bugs and will be fixed when Blizzard gets back from their vacation. Overall, it's fine. The teleport ability is a lot of fun to have when you're in open worlds trying to get treasures or skip traps in Torghast, but I would have rather have had the Soul Shape instead in Night Fae. So, all this to say, when it comes to Covenant abilities, the Covenants themselves, the whole feature which was the selling point of Shadowlands, I think it's alright. I don't think they did a good job of letting you pick whatever Covenant you want based on RP reasons, but I'd probably have a different opinion on that friend if I was able to pick Night Fae without having a useless ability. And even if I had to go with my second choice of Venthyr, they ain't half bad. I only have minor complaints to be honest, despite how much I've been complaining so far. Who cares about the mission table, really? So, I have to give the whole thing a 7 out of 10, bordering on a 6 out of 10. Could totally have just been like the Essence system, where you could swap between the abilities, and then allow us to pick whatever covenant you want based on aesthetic, or whichever second ability you wanted, since at least the teleport for Venthyr is more useful than something like Fleshcraft. Those poor Necrolords. And now, let's go into the zones, rating all of the Shadowland zones based on quests, aesthetic, and how they are to navigate. Basically, all of the zones are pretty great. I even like the Maw, which is something everyone else seems to hate. Just look at the grass in Bastion. I just kind of stop and stare at the grass whenever I'm running through the zone for a world quest. Obviously, I like Ardenwald the most out of all of them, but I also really like the architecture in Venthyr. And I even like the zone of Maldraxxus, which is usually a lot of people's least favorite one. Did you know? Maldraxxus doesn't have a single tree in the entire zone, because the place is basically just made of flesh and ooze. They did such a good job of keeping everything consistent that you probably never even noticed the lack of a single tree. So, when it comes to aesthetic of zones, it wouldn't be too hard to give it all a 10 out of 10. They usually don't go wrong when it comes to art, but what about the navigation of the zones? Since I have the Venthyr teleport ability, it's not that bad for me, but it could always be better. It's not as bad as navigating Nashtar or Vashir, for example, but I wouldn't say the zones are particularly super easy either, so I guess it just leaves the quest in the zones? How are those? The quests? They're alright, I guess. It does have a nice little flow that ends in a rebellion plot with the Venthyr. There were a lot of fun little neat moments inside of it. I think the quest of Venthyr was probably the best, and the quest in Ardenwald was probably the worst, despite the fact that I love everything else about that zone. The only good part of questing was the very end of Ardenwald where you help Ysera. Maldraxxus was fun, Bastion was a great introduction, if a little boring at first. Really boring at first actually. I remember I almost fell asleep during the questing when I was doing on the Alpha, until the introduction of the Forsworn and Maldraxxus invasion. All in all, the questing was alright. If I were to compare some of the best questing zones like Sirumar, Silverpine Forest, or the Hillsbrat Foothills, it probably doesn't measure up to those, but it's not too far behind. I'd have to give it an 8 out of 10 when it comes to questing, kind of high-ish. So all in all, my total score for the zones and Shadowlands would be a 9 out of 10. 
really good, not much to complain about, except for the Maw. Even though the Maw is pretty lore appropriate, in that you're not really supposed to like being there anyway. Let's go into raids and dungeons next. The raid is still pretty early, but a lot of people have already completed it. Castle Nathria is an excellent introduction raid. Although, well, rarely has bad raids, so that's to be expected. The final boss is also a wonderful, charismatic creature who has a pretty interesting boss fight instead of a disappointing one like Nazoth, and it was cleared in a reasonable amount of time during the world first race. When it comes to the dungeons, I don't really hate any of them. Although I haven't done a deep dive into Mythic Plus dungeons yet, but based on normal, heroic Mythic Zeros plus a handful of mid-tier Mythic Plus dungeons, I can say that there are no dungeons that I hate like Toldegore or Waycrest Manor for BFA. I should really make a video on the top 10 worst dungeons just so I can talk about how bad Toldegore was. Although, I can confidently say none of the Shadowlands early dungeons would make it on the worst of video because they're all pretty decent so far. Even the worst of the bunch is still better than Toldegore by miles. And I really like the other side dungeon. This is going to be one of my new favorites. Everything about it, too, the unique boss fights and Bwamsamdi cracking jokes the entire time is just excellent. I don't really have anything to complain about when it comes to raids and dungeons. So, when it comes to raids and dungeons on their own, from the perspective of an early launch, I have to give them a 10 out of 10 for now. High marks, obviously nothing is perfect, but I think reviewers are a little bit too hesitant to give things 10 out of 10s when there's just really good without any major complaints. Let's go over the gear of the expansion. Shadowlands tried to take a book from Classic WoW, reducing the amount of gear people could obtain, removing corruptions and titan forging from gear so you have BIS loot to shoot for, and having a much more reasonable version of the Legion legendary system. Plus, they added PvP vendors back to the game, and getting gear for PvP is so good that people are actually doing PvP for the first time in a long time in order to get gear for raiding in Mythic Plus dungeons, when usually it's the other way around. So obviously, gear in Shadowlands gets a 0 out of 10. Terrible, absolute garbage system. Nobody likes it. This is what you would think if you went online to look about gear in Shadowlands anyway. Turns out, people like their loot pinatas. The same people who complained about getting gear too easy are not the same kind of people who complain about gear being too difficult to obtain in Shadowlands. It's almost like different people like different things. And just because Classic WoW had a version of the game where bosses only drop two pieces of loot for 40 people, doesn't mean people like that in the current version of the game when they're used to getting three times the amount. Personally, I'm in a mixed bag about this. I do like to get gear easy, but I also feel that gear loses its meaning very quickly when you get a full set very fast in the expansion. It was very easy in past expansions to get to a point where your gear wasn't really going to get any higher. At that point, you just did high-level content for content's sake. Whenever you did get a loot drop, you'd only get excited if it was Titanforged. Although, with the lack of Titanforging, Making gear itself more scarce is a good way to make gear more exciting to get again, as you can't get to a point where your only upgrades are winning a lottery roll behind the scenes. It seems like a step in the right direction. I think in theory, it's better to be excited for an upgrade because it's a piece of gear that you want, that you knew was there, rather than getting a piece of gear to upgrade because it was Titanforged. Although, they probably dialed back a little bit too many knobs when they introduced the new gearing system. The weekly vault was an excellent step in the right direction. Nobody really liked opening their Mythic Plus dungeon for the week and getting a pair of boots for the 10th week in a row. And people really like the PvP vendors. And even the new legendary item system is a huge step above the Legion version, which was actually quite bad. What Shadowlands loot really needs 
is just one more little piece of deterministic rewards that you can get in PvE content. Something like a PvP vendor, but for Mythic Plus dungeons and raids. Maybe every time you kill the boss or complete a dungeon, you get some form of currency, which you could save up in order to buy a piece of gear for a slot that you have a low item level of. Maybe this currency could be in the form of one batch, so to speak, that you get each time you kill a boss for the first time. So even if you don't get a piece of gear at the end of the raid or Mythic Plus Dungeon, you know you're slowly working towards a new piece of equipment anyway. Although as far as I know, World of Warcraft has never had a system like that before. So until they invent a brand new system where you can target pieces of gear by just playing the game the way you like, instead of hoping to get lucky and get a piece of gear that you want, then we're kind of stuck with an almost perfect gearing system, which is a huge improvement over the last expansion. So for Shadowlands gear, they do a lot right, but they kind of took away too much gear too quickly. So I give it an average, above average score, 7 out of 10. Still better than the 4 out of 10 that I gave BFA gear in my BFA review. That score might even be a little bit too high for some people in that video. Now let's review Shadowlands infinite progression system. In Legion, they introduce a new form of progression in the game, where you can infinitely grind out a resource in order to always increase the power level of your character. An infinite progression system is a key feature to MMOs. RuneScape, for example, can constantly increase the power level of your character by going out and doing a whole bunch of random things. And generally, the progression system of the game is just getting better and better gear. With Legion Battle for Azeroth, we had the artifact power, which would constantly increase the power level of one specific piece of gear, which in turn, would increase the power level of your character. So, the infinite progression system in Shadowlands for its launch gets a, a question mark out of 10. That's because Shadowlands doesn't have one. They have the Renown system, which isn't actually a progression system and more like a time-gating system, where eventually you'll get everything unlocked, and it's incredibly fast to catch up on if you have a new alt or switch covenants. Anima is just order resources. You don't actually need it to increase the power of your character outside of grinding a thousand of it per week for Renown. Soul Ash is needed to craft legendaries, but that's not an infinite progression system. Stygia can increase the power level of your character with the sockets, but it's locked on how many you can actually farm per day, and you'll eventually get to a point where you have all sockets on your piece of equipment anyway. So Shadowlands just doesn't have one. They decide to remove an infinite progression system from Shadowlands to see how people would like it. Since people were fine with it in Legion, there were lots of controversies about artifact power, don't get me wrong, but they weren't as against it as they were in Battle for Azeroth. And I'm not going to give it a 10 out of 10 for not having an infinite progression system, because I think an infinite progression system can be fun if it's implemented well, since Diablo 3 is an excellent example of a fun infinite progression system which doesn't really work in WoW, because that one at least gets reset every season. Although even Diablo's infinite progression system is not without its controversies, so steering clear of it by just not having one seems like a neat idea. Now, let's review new game features for Shadowlands. Shadowlands has a whole bunch of new game features, including the Covenant system, where you get to pick a covenant based on which campaign you want to advance, which aesthetic you like the most, and more importantly, which abilities increase your DPS the highest. That's probably the reason most people pick their covenant. That's the reason I picked mine. Then we have Torghast, the roguelike version of World of Warcraft, where you get fun abilities in order to clear it. And after doing it two times per week, you get all the soul ash necessary in order to advance your legendary items. We have the end game zone of the Maw, which is a new type of feature where you're limited on how much time you can even spend in the zone. So 
the very nature of the zone makes it so you can't infinitely grind it out. And then going back to the Covenants, each one has its own unique feature inside of it. The vampires get the Ember Court, where they get to have a tea party once a week. The Night Fae get to grow plants, the Kyrian get to have a mini Brawler's Guild, and the Necro Lords get an actual useful open world combat companion that they get to create themselves. And finally, we have Soulbinds, an extra talent tree that everyone gets with their Covenants, where you get to choose and pick some of the talents you picked in the form of conduits, which is very fun and exciting. How did all these new features work out? Well, I had a very lengthy rant about the Covenants in the intro of the video, and the conduits themselves seem overly restrictive for no reason. I don't know if I'm the only one who feels this way, but you're locked into choices based on an arbitrary internal cooldown. We can only change out conduits like 10 times a week, with one of those things recharging after half a day. And the talent trees all provide pretty minor benefits. And you can't have a different loadout for different specs. So your best bet is just to have a different soulbind for one of your off specs, and just hope your two specs don't share the best soulbinds. And also, unlocking the entire talent tree is tied to Renown for some reason, so it just seems time-gated in order to add some kind of power progression to the Renown system, rather than because it makes any kind of sense. It just feels incomplete to have your soulbind tree not fully unlocked when you unlock it. I mean, it's, it's fine and everything, it, it does give your character some customization and what skills and abilities you want to focus on, and it is much better to choose your Azerite traits from a tree that you can plug in, rather than having to farm out specific pieces of gear in order to get those same traits. So, the Soulbind thing is a direct improvement over the Azerite gear, since that's probably the best thing to compare it to. A lot of the conduits are very similar to the Azerite abilities we had in BFA. Also, Torgas seems to have a lot of potential. Currently, it's not really there, and for half a week, the WoW community absolutely hated Torghast when Blizzard buffed the place in order to make it harder for everyone else. Before, they went back and nerfed it so people could complete the final layer so they could get their Soul Ash easier. It definitely has the potential to be a fun place and to get into some crazy builds, as if I had a couple of crazy builds of my priests, which were a lot of fun. There was one where I almost one-shot the final boss in Layer 8 run because I got lucky with a couple of traits that comboed very well with each other. And then there's other runs where I get no DPS abilities, and I couldn't kill the final boss, which just felt pretty bad. But that's just the nature of roguelike modes. It seems like a feature that definitely needs a lot of work, but it's okay the way it is now for some classes. And it wasn't even really that bad when people were complaining about it for half a week. And it was really fun in the beta when they first introduced it, and it was an endless mode. I think Blizzard is just too worried about people feeling too strong inside of Torghast, and then feeling too weak once they leave the place. So they don't want to go too crazy with how strong you can get in there, which is probably a step in the wrong direction for that mode. They should just go crazy and let you do all kinds of ridiculous stuff in there like you could in the beta, where you can run through and one-shot every mob and boss once you climbed high enough. And then the Maw is probably the most controversial out of all of the new features. You can only go in there for a limited amount of time per day in order to farm a limited amount of Stygia and Rep in order to eventually unlock the extra upgrades for Torghast or the sockets for your gear. And a lot of people just hate having to run through the zone since it doesn't let you mount up. And I gotta say, I actually really like the Maw. One of my favorite daily activities in the game, because of how difficult it is, is just to go and do the Maw. Once I found out there was a two-set bonus on some of the gear you can get in there to increase your speed inside the Maw by 10%, I had a lot of fun farming rares in order to get that speed buff. Although it is kind of a minor speed buff and it doesn't help anywhere near as much as I thought it would, but running at 25% move speed is still better than running at 15% movement speed, so I still wear the 2-set bonus. 
And I just like how difficult it is to move around, and how you have to be careful not to pull too many mobs. Otherwise, you'll die and have to run back to your corpse in order to get your Stygia back without dying before you make it back to your corpse. And I've never gotten more use out of my mind vision than running through the maw. It's a different kind of gameplay for open world content that they've never really had before. Although, I would still really like it if I could just mount up in there. And because it's so inconvenient to get around, it did really feel nice to unlock the mini portholes and the grapple hook. The maw is definitely in its beta stages, as during the beta, they didn't even have it finished when Shadowlands was supposed to launch. So most of the maw that we have right now was kind of developed in that one month grace period they gave themselves when they delayed the expansion. And even as an unfinished zone, I still kind of like it. I'm not going to pretend that I hate it, even though I acknowledge a lot of its faults. I totally get why a lot of people don't like it, but there's just something about it that totally appeals to me. The content is appropriately hard enough, but not too hard where it's impossible. Basically, getting gear definitely makes doing mod dailies a lot easier. The rewards are good enough to where your time is definitely worth spending in there, but not good enough where you're really forced to go there unless you're a top tier competitive player. The average player could skip the mod entirely and be totally fine. You just miss out on a couple of Torgos upgrades. But the gameplay and rewards and difficulty are enough where it triggers the part of my brain that just enjoys what goes into playing MMOs. So, I can't wait to see what the mod's like when they do finally finish it. And then the specific individual features locked inside each of the covenants. They're all fine, I guess. The only one I liked the most was the build abomination factory. But really, the other three are not half bad. I obviously don't have enough experience with the Night Fae or Kyrian specific features, but no one really complains about them either. You could say I'm pretty lukewarm on the specific feature I have for my Priest Covenant, the Ember Court. It's a fun little mini game, but it's no Abomination Factory. So long-winded features over, what I give for Shadowlands features is a 7 out of 10. Definitely better than the 5 out of 10 that I gave BFA, which was probably a little bit too high. But a 7 out of 10 seems kind of high as well, considering how many problems plague a lot of the new features. But the features themselves are not inherently bad, like islands or warfronts at least. They have a lot of potential to be improved where that was really not a thing you could say about islands or warfronts. And now, class design for Shadowlands launch. It seems kind of unbalanced, although my class, the Dis Priest, is fine especially since I chose one of the good covenants. So I'll hold off on giving it a score, but if I were to give it one, I'd probably give it a six out of 10, a little bit above average. Sure, some of the classes do way less DPS than others, but the balance still isn't as bad as Classic WoW, for example. And they'll probably balance it a little bit better once the devs come back from the Christmas vacation. They usually try their best to balance it out, that they won't let one class stay at the bottom of the DPS meters for too long, well, sometimes, sometimes they'll also just let them stay there for the entire expansion. And now for game-breaking bugs. BFA had a lot of bugs, or just a lot of minor bugs at launch, since they really needed to delay that expansion in order to fix a lot of stuff. Shadowlands also had a lot of bugs, and if I remember correctly, two or three realms were completely unplayable at launch, and are still having some problems right now. In my personal anecdotal experience, I haven't experienced any major bugs yet. Although, I do hear two features in the Covenant Order Hall are currently bugged, but I haven't really done any of those yet. And there's even a hilarious bug where a boss in one of the dungeons will have a Necroloid player teleport themselves outside of the dungeon, which definitely seems a little game-breaking. Although, since Shadowlands doesn't seem to have a vast amount of them like BFA did, 
I have to give it a slightly higher score than I gave BFA had, and give it a 7 out of 10. Having a couple of realms be completely unplayable is pretty bad. Although, seeing as I didn't personally encounter any bugs myself, I can assume a lot of other people didn't encounter some as well, or just didn't encounter enough where they remember them. But, if I was one of those people playing on one of those unplayable realms, I'd be pretty miffed and give it an even lower score than a 7 out of 10. Although, is an unplayable realm even counted as a bug? Now, the story, the lore, how's the story of the Shadowlands like? Well, like I went over a little bit when I was talking about the zones, is alright. I really like the cosmic horror of the Shadowlands they have subtly hinting at throughout the entire ordeal. Or that type of feeling. You see, cosmic horror can be described in one way, as a fear and feeling when confronted by a phenomenon beyond your comprehension. A scope so much bigger than the narrow view of human significance that everything you do seems incredibly unimportant once you see the bigger picture for yourself. When you go into the Shadowlands for the first time, after you escape the Maw, you're greeted by a robot in Bastion, who simply asks you which planet you come from. If you're a Draenei, you get the option to pick Argus, Draenor, or Azeroth, signifying that there are many more planets out there, which is proven true as you talk to more of the denizens of Shadowlands, and pretty much everyone you come into contact with could be from one of the many different worlds, but they have no idea, since everyone you come into contact with has had their memories wiped, which then leads into the moral dilemma of the whole zone, about whether or not you should have your memories wiped if you need to perform your job of bringing souls to the Shadowlands, which in itself Seems like a pretty dreary task. You lived a full life of helping people. You formed connections with many different peoples, have a full lifetime of experiences with friends and family, and at the end of all of it, you get brought into a strange new place and are shown millions of other souls from countless other planets, and that you should erase all those experiences in order to help them move souls into the same location. And if you don't, you can be thrown into the bar where you'll just suffer for the rest of eternity probably way more lifetimes in which you lived as an actual living person. This would kind of go into the realm of cosmic horror, at least a variant of it. You realize just how insignificant everything you did was. And if anything, the life you lived before was just act one of the rest of your eternity. Of course, Bastion is just one of many places. If you end up in Maldraxxus, there's the possibility that, after whatever life you had, maybe betrayed or died fighting for some cause you believed in, you get thrown into a pit with a whole bunch of other people who met the exact same fate at the end of their lives, and you're just kind of told to fight each other. And if you lose, your body will be stitched together with a whole bunch of other things, and you'll essentially combine into an amalgamation of souls, whose experiences will all be shared with each other, and then you'll eventually lose your individuality and become a part of a collective. That's basically what all the abominations are, and there's even a quest in Maldraxxus where you see that they were forcing this fate on a whole bunch of people from Bastion, which means people who led good lives, where they did the best they could, ended up being put into a meat grinder and forced into a collective with a whole bunch of other souls who are no longer themselves. The souls of Ardenwald, too, have it good. They basically just get reborn and sent back, presumably without memories of their past life, whereas the Venthyr know full well about what they've done in their past life, and have to overcome all the bad things they did in order to have the opportunity to live in an 1800s aristocratic society. Not half bad as far as fates go, but there's still the underlying knowledge that everything your character did in life doesn't really matter. What actually matters is the Shadowlands itself, the afterlife. 
as that's where people spend way more of their time existing, and really, living is just kind of the prologue of all of it. That's why when you're questing through the zones and learn more about the people there and the lore of all the various locations, there's this underlying tone to everything, where obviously the Shadowlands is more important, and a lot of the things you accomplished in life are kind of neat trivialities, because in the face of an endless afterlife with the knowledge of an infinite amount of other worlds, your brief century of life on one planet is kind of insignificant. When you try to gain an audience with the Winter Queen, she's constantly busy with something else because, quite frankly, tending to Ardenwald is more important than whatever one person has to say to her. No one in Ardenwald really questions it either, even though they know you have important information to give to her, because the majority of the time, there isn't really anything important that she needs to know about which she can't do on her own time. In Bastion, the denizens there don't really need memories of their past life in order to do their job, because then they'd probably find out how meaningless everything is, and how everything they did never really mattered, and now they have to be tour guides for the rest of their existence. They'd probably better off not knowing that there was better time before this, and some of them even get their memories back and have this exact same epiphany. And the Venthyr get to throw tea parties and pretend to be nobles. Again, they kind of have a little bit better off, despite the fact they're made up exclusively of people who were pretty terrible in life, and basically got turned into bat people. Now, cosmic horror is more normally used to describe unspeakable things, instead of a concept of something way more big than a narrow field of view of human life. So, cosmic horror is probably not the best way to describe the Shadowlands, although part of it does encompass the feeling that they were trying to get across. And I think they did a pretty good job of it if you really look past all the busy work they give you. Because essentially, you are basically just told to go out and collect things and kill stuff. They need you to do something in order to level up, but I also think they still did a good job of selling just how terrible the afterlife is. A lot of it just kind of sucks, and that's not even to mention what's going on in the Maw, where it's literally meant to just suck more than everything else. At least if you go to Maldraxxus, you have a chance to fight for your individuality. The Maw, you're just kind of constantly in agony for all of existence. In Bastion, at worst, you get turned into fuel for some robot, or you probably don't have to exist for very much longer. If Sylvanas is trying to find some way to subvert the afterlife, I am interested in what ideas she comes up with, or what ideas Blizzard has in store for what her, their Jailer, and Denathrys were trying to do. Because I totally get why they're not too happy with the whole system of the Shadowlands. It does seem like any change is better than what they're currently doing. Although, if their plan is just to make everything like the Maw, then I'd be kind of disappointed. So here's hoping they have some really neato idea, which will eventually be stopped in a raid, and then it'll just go back to whatever the Shadowlands is doing now. So yeah, basically the lore is alright, I give it an 8 out of 10. They have some neat ideas, and they sold the feeling of the Shadowlands pretty well, and they've also set up a potential bombshell of final reveal. Although, I think they keep hyping that actual plan of Sylvanas and the Jailer up a little bit too much. To the point where no matter what it is, a lot of people are going to be disappointed. It's kind of like what happened with Season 8 of Game of Thrones. Although hopefully they don't miss the landing quite as hard as that show did. Now let's go over the music of Shadowlands. It's pretty good. I don't think any of the zones have bad music. Generally, they have good music in World of Warcraft.
don't have anything super memorable like the Jaina Warbringers video thing, but definitely not bad either. I have to give their music a 9 or 10 out of 10. I don't really have anything wrong with it. I'm also not a music connoisseur, so I can't really talk much more about it either. And finally, my least favorite and favorite things of the expansion so far. My favorite thing of Shadowlands is definitely the Maw. Probably the most controversial thing I could like about the expansion, but there's just something about it that very much appeals to me. I also just have a general good feeling about most of the other stuff in there. It's just the Maw is kind of my favorite daily activity to do. Although, not by much. I'd still probably like doing raids or Mythic Plus dungeons more, but those are not new features of Shadowlands. And then my least favorite thing is probably the fact that I couldn't go Night Fae because the ability sucks so much. So, my least favorite things of Shadowlands is the Fae Guardian's Priest Covenant ability. Every time there's a new patch note that says there's class changes, I eagerly read through it to see if they buff the ability so I can swap to Night Fae, and then get disappointed when I see no changes. Other than that, I'm not really a huge fan of how I have to PvP to get my best trinkets, but PvP has been fun, so I'm not complaining too much about that. I do really hate how weak the Venthyr mission table people are. I still have yet to complete a Solash mission, despite having most of my followers 10 levels higher than the mission level. Although, I don't really care about mission tables either, so that's not really a big concern. And I do like the auto-battler system they have for it. I just don't like that my followers are weak. So, for my favorite thing, which is the Maw, I'd probably give it a, a 6, 6 out of 10, to be honest. I do like it, but it does have a lot of faults. And for the worst thing, the Fey Guardian ability for Night Fey, I have to give that a 4 out of 10, below average. Now, let's go to the grading scale. If we add up all the grades, I gave all the various different features and then divide the total number of the grades, we can get an average score, which rounds out to a nice 7.4 out of 10, which is definitely higher than the 6.8 out of 10 I gave Battle for Azeroth as a whole. Although, people complained I gave BFA too high of a score, which definitely has some merit to it. There were a lot of faults people had with my BFA video that I totally agree with in hindsight. Although, I probably uh, did the same things for this launch video. I don't think a video reviewing the launch of an expansion is something to take super seriously though, like reviewing the expansion of a whole at the end of it. So let's see if this video holds up. At the end of the expansion, where I'll make another video going over everything, and it will be really nice to compare and contrast things from launch of the expansion to how things ended up at the end. Oh, oh, oh. 
out of place Suddenly I hear the hopeful plea Through your voice Suddenly your life doesn't seem Such disgrace You just never had a choice The other day, someone posted the following in a YouTube comment. They said, Heya, are you able to please make a video on the best things to do if you have limited time? Like an order, when should we do the world boss, do your Torghast runs, do your Ma weekly quests, and etc. Some of us might read this comment and think, oh, you know, that's easy. You just do this and this and this, you avoid that, and you are on your way, which, you know, it's actually pretty close, but without context, it might sound a little bit confusing. But at least, you know I read the comments. Haha, -ha, go me! Hey, it's all with another video, and while I might not be able to exactly answer this person's question to their satisfaction, I am going to revisit my guide on progressing or catching up in Shadowlands efficiently now that we're a few months into the expansion. Maybe you're new. Maybe you're managing multiple alts, or maybe you're here to flex and comment on how you learned nothing new, but whatever the case, strap in and subscribe for more videos, too. Leveling through Shadowlands for the first time is going to be a fairly brief and relaxed affair. I get that you're in a rush, but please, take your time, enjoy the sights and sounds and cinematics, and probably do not level in war mode. 
the benefits of War Mode are not quite what they used to be, and I can safely argue that reaching level 60 a little bit faster is not going to be worth getting ganked by max level players barreling by. If you're leveling alts, you have a few options thanks to the Threads of Fate feature, and I advise choosing the option that's most comfortable for you. As in, forget about what you're being told is more or less efficient, because for some of us, playing through the story again and again is absolute torture. But open-ended leveling through Threads of Fate might be someone else's torture. Heck, this even goes back to my war mode comment, maybe you want to stay in war mode, that's totally fine. That said, I'm going to share what I've been doing on my alt, not because I think it's the best way to level, but again, it's what I feel comfortable doing. I complete most of the side quest content in each of the zones, making sure to pick up and hold on to dungeon quests. Then I ran the four dungeons, completed the quests, and turned those in. Then I completed the extra objectives for the experience and the gear, but I made sure to complete the big zone completion quests right away for the easy renown. Then I would cap off with a few more extra objectives, world quests, or, well, whatever gets my attention. Really though, again, do what you want, there is no wrong answer. Run dungeons, do PvP, maybe a weird hybrid of doing the story quests and then turning on the threads of fate. All of this makes a few hours worth of difference that, really, it doesn't have much bearing when it comes to the endgame. So let's skip ahead to max level, and after you've been introduced to your Covenant Sanctum and how all that stuff works, we now need to lay everything out on the table and get our priorities straight. We're just trying to catch up, so we're going to focus on how to obtain gear, renown, and legendaries. Little to nothing else matters. Developing your Covenant Sanctum, grinding for anima, and getting access to all of those rewards are, frankly, outside of the context of this video. We're trying to fight alongside our friends and guildmates, meaning farming anima is nothing more than a weekly quest. When it comes to gearing, I'll identify what I think are the two main approaches. There's the PvP route and the non-PvP route. At the moment, catching up and gearing through PvP is very accessible, very fast, and very lucrative. Honor isn't just a score, but it's a currency in Shadowlands that you can use to both buy and upgrade PvP gear via vendor. You can easily earn hundreds or more honor every hour to buy yourself a full set of item level 158 gear and then upgrade it as far as your renown allows, all the way up to a max of 197. Quick reminder, renown is Shadowlands way of a progression system that paces your gearing through world quests, unrated PvP, and even the end game story campaign. Fortunately, renown is also something you have a chance to earn from doing PvP, so you don't need to stress over this too much. Actually, if you're a hardcore PvPer, you can bypass this entirely by doing rated PvP and obtaining item level 200 gear with Conquest, which again can be upgraded for Honor, only this time the limit at which you can upgrade it is based on your PvP rating. There are also weekly PvP quests to pick up for Honor and Conquest right next to these vendors. Since we're in the middle of this first season, there's no need to get into the specifics of how Conquest and Catching Up works, you're going to see how quickly you gear up once you go through the paces. Really, I can't overstate this, PvP gearing is the fastest way to go. Going down this path has a very, very easy routine. You just log in, PvP, you purchase and upgrade gear, Every now and then you drop by your Covenant Sanctum to upgrade your maximum item level, and that's like 80% of the heavy lifting. But of course, not everyone wants to PvP, and that's okay. 
Depending on your realm's economy, you can buy your way to an idol level at around the 160s just by going to the auction house and buying crafted blues. This is another very fast way to get started. But if you don't have the gold, you're left with more traditional ways of gearing, but a lot of the tips here are also ideas to consider even if you mostly do PvP. One thing to do regardless of your gearing path is to progress as far as you can into your Covenant campaign. That's going to get all of Shadowlands features unlocked, from world content, to Torghast, to legendaries, you also get some renown, and you start building a Covenant gear set that might be useful, but, well, you're probably going to quickly replace it. Just like in previous expansions, world bosses are available. Make sure you knock it out each and every week. Depending on which boss is up, you'll get a legendary memory for your character. You might get a gear upgrade, and you may get renown. Of course, do the weekly events that award gear, like the Time Walking or Mythic Dungeon events. Each day, make sure to complete the Covenant callings that are available to you. You're going to get lots of gold, conduits, and maybe renown if you're a bit lucky. Just doing these things will get you a lot of renown that will get you more campaign progression and better gear rewards from world quests, and this should help you be eligible to run Heroic Dungeons. As you're roaming around for world quests, pay special attention to the ones that award conduits. I advise knocking these out, picking up the conduits and learning them as soon as possible. As you collect and replace conduits earned from world quests, dungeons, and raids, the conduit rewards from world quests will be replaced with something else that you might want instead, like reputation or gear. Since you're playing catch-up with Renown, it's important to understand how to kind of sort of game the system or prevent the system from messing with you. For those who have been playing Shadowlands from the very start, Renown has been earned at a steady rate of 2 to 3 per week, which is earned from two weekly quests to save souls from the Maw and to collect a thousand anima. In your case, you're going to find Renown all over the place, but only up to a certain point. If you're very close to being caught up with others, you actually don't want to complete these weekly quests until just before the reset. I know it's a bit janky, but reports have been coming in saying that people who were catching up but completed the weekly quests first would always be a few Renown behind everyone else. But if they were to get caught up within two Renown and then turn in the weeklies, then they would be caught up. I know it sounds messy, because it is, but the rule of thumb is basically to turn in your weeklies later rather than sooner. The Maw is largely an optional experience with rewards that loop into itself, like improving your experience in this zone as well as Torghast, where the benefits are much more prevalent. Characters on alts can probably almost entirely ignore the Maw on subsequent playthroughs because the purchasable Torghast perks are account-wide, unlike the Maw perks. There is a weekly event to fight off the Jailer's forces that has a chance of dropping gear, and there is a purchasable socket upgrade that's, well, very expensive. But in my opinion, it doesn't matter if this is your first or your fifth character. Apart from rescuing souls and maybe a bit of exploring, the Maw is just not a very efficient place to spend time in if time is a precious resource for you. Torghast, on the other hand, is pretty important. As the primary source of Soul Ash, the stuff to make legendaries, it's definitely worth investing time into pushing to the highest layers of Torghast to eventually complete two Layer 8 runs per week. Gear goes a long way into completing these 6-4 climbs successfully, and it contributes more than what the purchasable upgrades have to offer, so again, the Maw as it is right now just isn't a grind that I'd recommend. Even Soul Ash has a diminishing return. 
Once you've obtained enough of this ash to craft and fully upgrade what you want, there's very little reason to run it or the twisting corridors unless you want to farm for the cosmetics that drop there, or for fun. When it comes to stockpiling ash, here's some early speculation. At the moment, we can hold up to 8,000 soul ash in our inventory. When the season ends, this soul ash might be converted into gold. Or like Titan Residuum in Battle for Azeroth, the amount of soul ash that we earn in later seasons is going to go up, as well as the cost of crafting legendaries. So it's up to you if you want to stock up on soul ash just in case. While we're on the subject, let's figure out just how much soul ash you need by looking at legendaries. Like I said, it's important to get your priorities down, so take a look at your adventure guide and scroll through the available legendary powers for your class and spec. A handful of legendaries are shared between all the classes. These are learned from reputation, so your main can do the heavy lifting here. But for other legendaries, some may drop from world bosses and raids, which are guaranteed drops. Legendaries from dungeons are not guaranteed, but these days you can spam the same heroic dungeon using the dungeon finder over and over again until you're satisfied or frustrated. Crafting the legendary itself is fairly costly depending on your realm's economy. If you've been completing Covenant Callings each day though, that's going to be thousands of gold with each turn-in every day, so you should be earning the gold to buy the materials that you need and maybe have some extra to buy some other gear from the auction house. Fulfilling all the requirements in the Great Vault isn't a huge deal early on because at this point, you're going to take every upgrade that you can get. Later on, of course, it's worth filling out as much as you can to help ensure that you do have a guaranteed upgrade waiting for you the following week. Now here's some data, I guess, dry information that you might be interested in so you know what milestones to hit. The maximum upgrade level for unrated PvP gear go up at Renown levels 7 and 22, allowing a maximum item level of 197. Conquest gear starts at an item level of 200, and the maximum upgrade goes up as you earn the various PvP titles up to Duelist, which requires you to reach a rating of 2100 one time. The maximum item level of World Quest rewards go up at renowned levels 10, 19, and 29, where you're going to see gear drops in the 190s or higher. Queuing for a normal or time walking dungeon requires an item level of 144. For heroic dungeons, you need 155, and for Raid Finder, 170. So here's the TLDR, just to be clear PvP is the optimal path to gearing quickly. Otherwise, focus on gaining renown quickly by regularly farming the world boss, callings, weekly quests, and then queuing for dungeon, raid, and PvP content for more renown. Run world quests for gear and conduit upgrades. Ignore the Covenant Sanctum upgrades and the Maw outside of saving souls. Once you hit an item level milestone and you're eligible for new things, add these activities to your routine while you can let other things fall off. And of course, run Torghast until your Soul Ash needs are satisfied. I know it's debatable, but it's pretty safe to argue that it's much easier to get caught up in Shadowlands than in previous expansions. The gearing definitely hits a sort of plateau when you start hitting higher keys or heroic raids, but you're sort of running with the pack at this point, and then I suppose you can finally start playing the game. I hope that this video was useful, and if so, leave a like, that always helps me out. So to subscribing, that way you can get more videos like this and all things Warcraft. We'll see you next time. Until then, stay safe, stay healthy, and stay breezy. Thank you very much, Soul. So this brings us to the end of today's episode, episode 116 of Cops on Radio. And as always, I would like to thank 
our contributors. We have Noble87, Charm, Hero Maradex, and so so breezy. Thank you very much, guys. And as always, I want to thank Patty Madsen. Thank you very much, Patty. Very, very much appreciated. As for the next episode, I'm not going to go too much into it, but I'm working on something special. So we might have a little surprise next time. Maybe the episode after next. Not sure as to when I'll get around to finish this up. So with that little hint of a possible special something, I'll leave you to go back into the Shadowlands and enjoy the expansion. Thank you very much everyone for listening. Have a great time and I'll see you next time. Bye everyone. I hope you have enjoyed your time with the Forsaken of Corpse Run Radio this episode. Should you have an idea for a little segment of your own, I would love for you to become part of the cast. Or if you are a creator of Warcraft original or parody music and would like to be featured on the show, contact us at mail at gmail.com or on Twitter at CorpsRunRadio. We also have a Facebook page, facebook.com slash radio. Contact information for our contributors is available on our website, crr.podbean.com, along with the links for the segments played on the episode and other information. Corpse Run Radio is a non-profit fan podcast. All segments, music and sound effects are used with permission. Thank you for listening. Now go out, my minions. Let nothing stand in your way. Until next time.